Good evening, everyone. As you're aware of, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Scripture. And you've heard me say it before. Oh, hi there. You heard me say it before, as I would tonight, that <clears throat> that keeps us from avoiding any text in Scripture. This is one of those texts that we approach, and let me just say without apology, what the Scripture says is truth. God is not waiting for us to take a vote on anything. God is not waiting to see how society changes so that we can change His Scripture. And sometimes Scripture can be, well, to be honest, just very opposite of what we know in society around us. Without doubt, this is one of those texts. And it's going to hit um, on a handful of levels, so do this first. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, let's get one to you. And then open it up, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our goal this evening is to cover the first half, in essence, of of the text. There are some magnificent things happening, and I'm very, very thankful for them among us, including this opportunity coming up on this Sunday night. For any of you who have the time, uh, come make food if you want to. Bring it. Um, Come and just be a part of it. If you're the kind that doesn't like to sit on the floor, grab a cushion. (laughs) We are looking at coming between 6.30 and 7. Feel free to bring any friends along you'd like. And we're going to go and we're going to just praise the Lord for a couple hours. My challenge to you is to praise Him without reluctance. To just go for it. To just enjoy our Lord and fellowship with each other. And watch what He does. As far as our plan for the night, what would be success? If we simply were there and we loved Jesus and God did whatever He wanted that evening, it would be perfect. To delight in his delight. So what a great text to step into prior to that. We have this weekend. Isn't this the women's breakfast on Saturday? So there's a women's breakfast on Saturday. There's a couple study on Friday. Two Bible studies tomorrow. There's a lot going on in the next few days. Read along with me if you would please. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you and you are unworthy to judge the smallest matters, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But a brother goes to law against brother, and that before believers. I'm sorry, that before unbelievers. 
Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law once against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Praise God for verse 11. Wouldn't you hate it if that was the end of the Bible? I would. And, or but, such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Pray with me, please. Thank you, Lord, so much for the statement, and were some of you. And you don't even then go and take us to this place where you say, but now we're just X those things. You actually tell us that we're something new. Lord, as we make our way to that beautiful apex in Scripture, may we take to heart, Lord, that when you wrote this, you had no intent of this being on a sliding scale to soften by culture, for surely the culture then was just as wicked as the one we're in today. Just as open to the same sins, just as encouraging of the same vices is promoting of the same destructions. Tonight, Lord, rend our hearts if they're not. Tear them open and rip out of it anything that is cancerous, gangrenous, evil, harmful to us and to others. And make this night a night of purging and cleansing that we would walk out of here feeling like we got a bath in the very best of ways. So Lord, tonight, have your work. By the power of your Holy Spirit, immerse me, submerge me, come upon me that I would be your jersey. Thank you for the blessing of being able to serve you. So Lord, now give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive, and may we get it tonight. Understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Well, we're almost to the midway part of this book. By chapter 7, it completely flips to a new kind of attitude. About roughly five years ago, on Paul's second missionary trip, he stopped in for the first time the area of Corinth, synonymous with sin. It is the Amsterdam, or the Vegas of Europe in its day. 
To be called a Corinthian would be to be called someone that lacks morals. Cicero says so. Um, Aristotle says so. Homer would say so. They would say that if you were to be called such a thing, you were clearly a rampant sinner and that was your identity. You were known for it. You were the one who could outdrink the rest. You were the guy that could have the most girls physically. You were the one who could beat up the most people or fight the most. You were the one known for your sin. Watch out for that one. That one's a liar. That one's a thief. And they were proud of it. And when the church was planted, Paul spent years there developing a group of people, seeing elders raised up, laying a foundation of Jesus Christ. And when he did, and when he left, the church appeared to be in a fairly sound state. It appeared. Shortly thereafter, it appears as if a man would come named Apollos, a gifted speaker, but not as fully informed. As a matter of fact, at the first, only speaking of the baptism of John, which the Bible makes clear is a baptism of repentance. In other words, he'd say, Hey, you, getting drunk, stop getting drunk, repent. Hey, you, having sex, stop having sex, repent. Hey, you, getting wasted, stop getting wasted, repent. And that was his message. But he was eloquent in the way he said it, and people followed him. Within the five years, the church is degraded now to a place where it is spiritually retarded. Literally. It is now lacking. And Paul is amazed. Apparently, Chloe's household, apparently one of the places the church meets, sends a letter to Paul by the hands of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, three guys from the church. Paul receives the letter, and the letter basically says, Paul, the church is a mess. It is a three-ring circus. It is just crazy, and we don't even know how to stop it now. It's a mess. Oh, and we have a bunch of questions for you. That will be next week, starting next week. So for the first six chapters, Paul addresses the problems within the church. I remind you, the church he himself was instrumental in planting. And then from chapter 7 onward, he'll say, Now concerning the things you wrote to me. So there are those, Paul, we've got some questions. Ask Pastor Paul. And that will begin next week. Or, or the week after if we don't finish the chapter, and that's fairly likely. As Paul sort of, as a doctor, physician Paul, pokes and prods to find out the problem with the body in Corinth, he says the diagnosis is simple. You're carnal. What you are is a church that seeks to please the world instead of a church that lives in the pleasure of Christ. What you want is the applause of men. What you aren't concerned with is the pleasure of God. And as a result of that, it's simple. It's a slam dunk, simple diagnosis. You're full of contentions, divisions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. You're elevating man. You're so proud of your, of your sin tolerance. Because this is only carnal. That's all it is, is that you've never graduated to the place where your mind got connected with heaven. 
Everything is still governed in the moment. You're living the seize the day instead of a seize eternity. And it owns you. But he never questions their salvation. Interesting, when he says that people are divided against others and they're competing, he'll talk about the spiritual gifts and talk about it. appears to me that the spiritual gifts become part of the three-ring circus. Who can speak in tongues the most? Who seems to be the most lambastic in their spiritual esoteric experience? And yet he doesn't say that that's the greatest failure. There was a guy sleeping with his father's wife. That's either mom or stepmom. We can agree in either case it's messed up. And the angels came. Sorry. I didn't plan that. And the church brags about their sexual tolerance. And you can do that. There are churches. Come, we accept everyone. Stay as you are. Come as you are. Be as you are. Die as you are. And they're proud of it. And yet he doesn't say that that is an utter failure. But this he does. See, the most amazing thing is the comparison of chapters 5 to 6. Because in chapter 5, they're bragging about how tolerant they are of other people's sin. But by chapter 6, it's very clear they are completely intolerant of each other's personalities. Or should I say it this way? They don't seem to have a problem when they sin against God. They only have a problem when they sin against them. And that becomes the issue here. Is that... When people are driven by the flesh, it is a me-first mindset. That's it. That's the simplest way to see it. Why are there divisions? Because we're busy promoting ourselves. Why are we name-dropping? Because we're really trying to promote ourselves. Why are we happy or trying to be tolerant of other people's sin? Because it grants us then the freedom to commit the same sin without fear of judgment. Why would we quick, in this case, to sue others? Brothers? Because darn it, I'm going to get mine. And this chapter is chock full of Paul getting down and janky with the people. Six different times in this short chapter, Paul will actually say, Don't you know? He says, Don't you know the saints will judge the world? Don't you know that the saints will judge angels? Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's the first three we'll see in this text. God willing, next week, the remainder of the chapter, don't you know your body is a member of Christ? Don't you know to be joined with a heart that joins Christ to her? Don't you know that if your body is a temple, you are not your own, you were bought by a price? You belong to Christ now? That's where it ends. How could you actually get all high and mighty about yourself when you have been purchased by Christ? You're standing up in church and trying to make big of yourself, and Jesus says, in love, sit down and shut up. In love. But in this chapter, more than any other, it seems like Paul is overwhelmed and flabbergasted. And the last chapter, Paul just gets tight. That man's sleeping with his mother. You just get that man out of the church and tell him that when he wants to repent and get serious about being right with the Lord, then let him back in. Which we'll see, by the way, in 2 Corinthians that the guy actually does it. This was not to kick him out permanently. This was to kick him out until he was ready to come in for the right reason, which is Jesus, and not just to go and start scamming other chicks. Understand that. Because there are times where the church has to exert some form of force not to be mean, but for the safety of the fellowship. By the way, you've never seen anything like that here. 
But if a man came in with a gun, you'd be thankful of the person that took him down before they could shoot. But in this chapter, Paul, listen to the way it starts. Dare any one of you? He's like, can you believe this? I mean, you can see as he were read, as he were reading the letter from Chloe's household, he's like, whoa, that's okay. Really? They're elevating me and Paulus? Are you serious? Wait a minute, they're elevating Peter? Now that's really crazy. And then it's, wait a minute, they're divided over each other. There's sexual sin. Are you kidding me? And then he gets to this and he's like, are you kidding me? Dare any one of you having a matter against a brother go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And the first of these things he says then is, don't you even know that the saints will judge the world? Now, when in the world is that going to happen? Well, it's interesting, and I challenge you for those who can make it to come on this Sunday, because it's the first time we really will be developing what they call in the fancy term eschatology. And what that means is how the end of the world, how the world wraps up. And the reason is it's perfectly fitting into our area in Leviticus as we look at that coming in, in that coming chapter. But understand, if I can give you a very basic view of the book of Revelation, how many of you, if you are honest with me, are intimidated by the book of Revelation? Any of you, by a show of hands? Go ahead, just be honest. Okay, that's something to be said. First of all, let's start with this. The book of Revelation is not the book of Revelations. If you're going to say that, tell someone you came to another, from another church. But it's Revelation, and the reason is the first verse in the text. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you get that far, the whole book already becomes nicer. See, that's what I'm supposed to be looking for. I'm supposed to be looking for Jesus. By the middle of the first chapter, John has seen, he's, been, he's in a work camp, and he's been lifted up to see the Lord. And there he is in heaven, if you will, Jesus at home what he looks like at home. And Jesus gives this command. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which must take place. And then the Greek word is metatauta, after these things. And that's the entire structure of the book. Chapter 1, John writes what he's seen. Jesus glorified. Chapters 2 and 3, the things which are. The state of seven churches that Paul had oversight of, by the way, in western Turkey. From chapters 4 on then, the things which must take place, meditate after these things. And God wants to make sure you don't miss it so much though, that the first verse, the first verse of chapter 4 begins and ends with the word meditate, just in case you missed it. After these things, after these things. In chapters 4 and 5, there is a big celebration. The celebration of the Lamb beginning to execute judgment. The Lamb taking back the Lamb that is rightly His claiming it from a deed that would be a bankrupt deed to a property for which then the bad tenant farmers would be evicted and the rightful owner would take his land. We often would look at that as the day of Jubilee or the year of Jubilee. Four and five is a big celebration, a gathering of saints and angels. From chapter six then through 19, there is a season of judgments. Very similar to what would happen if you had to go through a legal process to get your land back from bad tenant farmers. A series of three different judgments. At the end of that period of time, Satan is bound for a thousand years and the world is put in a place where God rules by an iron fist. What would happen if man didn't have a choice to accept Jesus as Lord? 
That's an argument many people would give you. You'd say, well, look at the thousand years. That's what it is. And then after that, Satan is released. One last battle. We win. We live happily ever after. That's the whole book. By the way, in case you want to know, it ends well. So listen. What was? What he's seen? Jesus. Glorified. What is? Church is a mess. Six, seven different churches. Of them, by the way, only one gets a really, really great write-up. One gets a little rough write-up, but it's nice. And one gets one no, nothing good about it. That's the last of them. And then, what must take place? There's this time of great gathering of celebration. There's a time of judgment. That's a time we would call tribulation. That all means trouble or rough times. And then after that, a time of God standing and, and ruling for a thousand years. And then after that, one last battle that we call, you know, is Armageddon. Hod, by the way, means hill. Megiddo is where it takes place. Like where Solomon kept his horses, Megiddo. Hod or Megiddo is the hill of Megiddo, which is where we get the word Armageddon from, by the way. In that thousand years, Jesus promised that his saints would reign with him. We are told that if we, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. The good news is that Jesus will have those that serve him or that are surrendered to his leadership and will rule with him. There will be a time when the saints will actually come marching in and be large and in charge. And Jesus had told us, by the way, we don't like to think of it. He says the last will be first, the last now, first later. In our context to this, by the way, that's the entire book of Revelation. There you go. In our context to this, Paul has some view of that. And he looks and goes, do you have any idea of the position you're going to employ later? And yet, even in that position, look at you now. You are clearly not in a place where I'd want to hire you for that role. You're all about demanding rights that you do not have. Listen, a few verses just to kind of support that, to give you an idea. In Psalm 49, verse 14, it says, Like sheep, they're laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall be consumed in the grave, far from their dwelling. In Psalm 149, starting in verse 5, it says this, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud in their beds. Listen to that great command. I'm going to try that on my wife tonight, see what she thinks. Let the high praises be, pray for her, right? Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind the kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaking to one of those churches in verse 21 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus says in Luke twenty two thirty, Eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on my thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In Revelation two twenty six he says, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, 
To him I will give him power over the nations. Somewhere down the line, Paul was really clear on this. Now maybe it's something you've never thought about. And yet it's important to recognize that here it's a side note. It's sort of assumed. It's a given. Don't you realize that in the sight of eternity, your moment right now is so insignificant in comparison and you're fighting over something that's going to burn? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, and you, and it says then, listen to this, are you unworthy to judge in the smallest matters? Them going to trial was in the sight of Paul ridiculous. Because in the sight of eternity, you were arguing over, at best, pavement in heaven. It says the streets are paved with gold. And you want to fight over it. You want to fight over a big chunk of concrete to try to take it with you. God says, don't you think that's silly? If you remember the story when Joshua goes into the land to take the promised land. It always amazes me every time I read this. And the first battle they have is with a place called Yericho. Yericho was a place that had a wall that was as thick as the area between these. As thick as, and then separated by a space of this, and then something as similar. It was as many as four to seven stories tall. It all depends on what historian you want to listen to. It seemed as impervious as anything. So when you're going to be dancing around, walking around silently and following the Lord by faith to do something completely nonsensical and say at the end of seven days when you're done marching, march around it seven, day, seven times and then just scream really loud and watch the walls fall down. It would be rough to be able to give that message to your group, wouldn't it? Guys, I got a message from God. And they're like, that's a funny God you've got. But then God says, once you get into the land, don't take anything. Don't take anything. Let it all stay. Don't worry, you'll have other spoils. So they go in, but when they go to the second battle, a town that's so small, we like to call it AI to make it sound bigger, which is I. They don't even deal with it like it's any great concern because they just had a major battle with a major garrison, with a major army, and they took it down big time. So they look at this thing as it's inconsequential. So they only take 3,000 guys and dish them out there to take care of it, and they get whooped. Joshua falls on his face and starts accusing God, going, God, why did you do that? And God said, there is compromise in the camp. Within the camp, there is a guy, and he has taken stuff he shouldn't have, and if your camp isn't consecrated, you're not going to get these battles. It's never going to be about your force to win any of these things, pal. Loose paraphrase. So they go and ultimately through Lot's find that it's a man named Achan, or we might say Achan, which is a good name for him because he really was Achan before the thing was done. And it says that he stole some gold, some silver, and my favorite part, a Babylonian garment. You are with a nation of slaves. You've been slaves for 430 years. And God says, take this town, don't come out with anything. And you come out with a Babylonian garment. Where in the world are you going to wear it? Do you really think you could go to your next door neighbors and go, Oh, this old thing, it's been in my closet for 500 years. Really? Now, who thinks of it though? 
you get caught up in the moment and you just start grabbing stuff. We don't even read that they use gold or silver as a monetary value system yet because they still were going into the land. They didn't even know what spent there. But they were taking their old world with them. And that old garment and the gold and the silver became the testimony of that person's sin and disobedience to God. What a nonsensical thing. And now Paul looks at them and he goes, you know what you're doing? You guys are fighting over Babylonian garments. You're fighting over stuff that has no real value in the world from an eternal perspective. See, follow me on this, and we'll, get, we'll dive into this, but I've I, I got to say this, please. Because maybe that's not you. Can I just say, Scripture, let's just lay it on the line and put it as simple as we can. It is unbiblical for a Christian to sue a Christian. That's just what it says here. You don't like it? Take it up with the author. I didn't write this book. But it is what it says. And we will stand by that. He does give two other options, by the way, and you can take a look at them. But the problem is that what the world has that we don't is a punitive backup. In other words, if you take it to court, you can get the guy in jail if he doesn't obey. You take it here and you have some guy decide the course, you know, you could just back off on the whole thing and forget it ever happened is the idea. And if you're like, well, then don't come to this church, you'll just find the next one down the street. There's one in every corner if you try. But listen, listen, let's get beyond all of that for a moment. Let's get to the heart of the matter. See, at the heart of the matter, well, let me ask you something. How many of you are confident you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Would you raise your hand? Confident you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. Okay, that says something. See, the moment you accepted Jesus Christ, you accepted, listen, you didn't ask Jesus into your heart as much as you'd like that. It's a very nice little Western thing, but it doesn't say it in Scripture. To be honest, you asked, you invited yourself into His. Because you didn't ask Jesus into your life, you invited yourself into His. There's a very different thing. See, Jesus wasn't to add to your life, He was to actually reinvent it. He was to remove the life you had and give you a new one that was his. And in Jesus' life, the fundamental thing is, people first, stuff is only to serve people. That's it. People first. Not stuff. Jesus put himself last. Yet when we got saved, there's a whole lot of us that have trained ourselves to put stuff first, because that's us first. You can look at someone, and you can do this, man. You're talking to someone, and all they can do is see your phone or your whatever. And they're like, man, they're wishing they had your stuff. And it's like, sometimes you're talking to someone, you're kind of like, mm, if I keep talking to this person long enough, they're going to be reaching for something. So let's play it out as a Christian now. Kwesi and I, and Dan, have decided we're going to go to a restaurant somewhere. We're going to go to a Garfunkel's somewhere down in the down in the center of the city. We're going to take Anthony with us, the four of us. And as we're there, the gal kind of comes over. She's our waitress. And she is not giving us the time of day. She's rude. And Questy's offended. He's like, can you believe that gal? Where did she get off that way? Who does she think she is? Questy gets a cup of coffee. And they promise bottomless cup of coffee. In other words, he can get it refilled as many times as he can drink it. So he drinks it to check it out. And for the next half hour, his cup remains empty. By this point, it's dry. And he's angry. He's very angry. Anthony orders a steak. But he wants it medium rare. Well, actually, he wants it well, because he's British. He wants it well done. No mooing with you. We're from America. America's like, kill it and grill it. I don't care. 
And it comes and it's way, un- way undercooked. And he's very angry. Thank you. Daniel asks for the bill. Because, you know, Daniel likes to pay the bill. This is all hypothetical, by the way. And he discovers that the coupon, the voucher that he brought in, was not applied to the, to the thing, and he's angry. That's more money. But I'm there. And as the pastor and the holy one, just kidding. <laughs> we're going to go out of there, and if we're not careful, if we are in the world at this moment, in the flesh, Quessy's going to go and blog. Anthony's actually going to get on and he's going to find all of those like timeouts and all of those things and make sure that they get no stars and whatever you do, don't ask for this waitress. She is a wreck. And the cook, what a jerk he is. Daniel starts, I hate Garfunkels.com. But you know what we didn't do? Was pray for the waitress. Find out what's up with the cook. See, because all of a sudden stuff became more important. Do you see how easy that is? Listen, my wife and I made a vow a long time ago that when we find that that kind of thing happens, we want to see if we can get in. Do you know what we've discovered? I mean, since we're American, we can get away with it, I suppose. Or they just assume we're going to get in, crawl in your grill. Hey, we're going to be praying for our food. As weird as it sounds, is there anything we could be praying for for you? Now, sometimes they'll look at us like we have the plague and we're throwing it on them. We're aware of that. But sometimes they sit down with you. They sit down and say, I just had abortion yesterday. How do you respond to that? And they're scanning your face to see how you're going to respond to that because you said you were going to pray, so you're a representative of some God as far as she's concerned. My mom tried to commit suicide last night. These are real stories. This is real life. And I would have walked out of there Angry because she didn't. And I don't drink coffee, so that's not as big of an issue for me. Because my food was cold. Because let's, I mean, let's be honest. If you know me, I could skip a whole bunch of meals and I'm, I'm going to be just fine. But that girl was contemplating whether she was going to live past the night. Do you see how easy that is? And every one of us could do it if we're not careful. This is what Paul said was an utter failure was we're so caught up in ourselves that we'll let the world judge because we don't even care if they go to hell because I want my iPhone. Because I want to make sure I get paid. So go ahead and let the unbelieving world believe that we have nothing more than they do as long as for the moment I get my Babylonian garment. That's what we're saying, isn't it? Can you see why Paul is concerned? He's like, do you realize you're convincing the world that you don't have anything they don't? How exactly did that work for you? So it's like, do any of you do this? Do any of you really want to do that? And can, let me just, listen, I'm not here to diss your past, but can we make a commitment from this point forward? Is not divorce suing each other? Are you not going to the court of law to let them settle your accounts? over your CD collection, over which, who gets the, you know, the Iron Man DVD series, who gets the flat screen. Do you know what those things are, right? They're Babylonian garments. You're not going to be watching Iron Man in heaven, 3D or not. 
And there's the danger, beloved. And I'm not here to diss your past. But I'm here to tell you, if you get married, don't ever, 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 ever expect me to endorse divorce. Hey, what's past is past. That can't be changed. But the future can. You can change your future by the choices you make today. Does that make sense? Hey, that's me too, by the way. I would never expect anything of you that I wouldn't expect of me. Hey, there have been several cases, by the way, where I'm I'm not even going to go to the court against people who don't know the Lord. And you've been dissed, and it's like, you know, if if I had cashed in on all of my Babylonian garments, I probably would have bought a house here. But it's so much better not to. Because you know why? Because I could actually rather give God the room to do what He wants to do. And if you're the kind that's like, hey, well, that's your problem. You're messed up. I need to give mine. Go ahead and stand before God and tell Him to give you what you got coming. See how that works out. Because I'll tell you what I deserve. And if I can just be brash enough and honest enough with you, what you deserve too, we deserve hell. That's what we deserve. Because one sin does it. Perfection is the standard and one sin does it. And if you want to stand before God and say, God, I demand my rights. Jesus says, you became a slave the moment you said yes to me. What rights do you have? You chose the forfeit them. Did you forget that? Or do you not read when I say, many say to me, Lord, Lord... But will not enter the kingdom of heaven? Because Jesus then turns and says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? What kind of boss can I be for you to say, No, boss. How does that work? I saved your life and redeemed you and made you my own for what? And we want to play that game with people? It's like, really? That's where we want to go with this? Listen, there are a couple options here. You may not like them. Verse 3, it says, don't you know we'll judge angels? What in the world does that mean? There is a day when God is going to separate them all and they are going to be spending, they'll spend eternity away from us. Praise the Lord for those that are bad. Now, you can play that two different ways. The word angelos means messenger, and I want to remind you of that. Now, whether that is angelic beings or not, that's another story. There's not as much scriptural support in that, but the bottom line is that from the standpoint of eternity, you're going to be the one standing with other things to be able to decipher between things. And if this is where your standard is at the moment, you are in no way equipped to judge eternal matters. That's the point. Verse 4. If then you have judgments pertaining to things, pertaining to this life, do you appoint those, and please hear me in this, who are least esteemed by the church to judge? What if that's really the truth? Are those in the world least esteemed by the church to judge? Let me tell you what Scripture says. Proverbs 21.30 There is no wisdom or understanding, or counsel against the Lord. There's none. Because in Psalm 110, verse 10, or Psalm 111, verse 10, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 9, 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And if you're not going to see God as large and in charge, you will not make those choices either. You'll be caught up in the overcast and marine layer of the temporary. So here's the first option, verse 5. I say to your shame, is it so that there is not a wise man among you? Not even one who was able to judge between his brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Therefore it's an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. The first option is 
to select a man that you trust as godly and mature and impartial will judge between the matters. But if that be the case, both parties have to be willing to consign themselves to the decision. And there comes the problem. See, what they had back then that we don't today is a thing called, and I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, the word is honor. See, the idea that a person actually really wanted to do things that were honorable, that took character. Another word that seems to be lacking, and I know I sound like I'm 110 when I say this. Today, you are applauded if you get it, no matter how. And if you do the least and get the most, congratulations. But in a world where honor is the issue, that does not play. A person that steals, connives, rips people off, and lies can be applauded here, but not in the sight of God. Honor says it is someone you trust that is faithful. So Jonathan is laying concrete for a friend, for Lucas. Lucas says, lay the concrete for the front of my house, the walkway up, and I'll give you 200 pounds. Jonathan thinks that's a great idea. So he lays the concrete, as good as Jonathan can at the moment. Lucas looks at it and he says, I don't like it. I don't like the job you did. Jonathan says, I did the best job I could. Lucas says, I had a better idea in my mind. I'm not going to pay you. Jonathan says, you need to pay me. You said you would if I did it. Pay me. No. Pay me. No. Pay me. No. Pay me. No. Fine. You'll be hearing from my lawyers. But instead they say, you know what? That's, you know what? I don't don't like that. We don't want to do that before people because in our heart, people are more important than stuff. And if people are more important than stuff, I do not want to give anyone the opportunity to go to hell because of my behavior. They say, you know what? I disagree with you. You disagree with me. That we can agree on. Do you trust Jeffrey? Actually, I do. How about you? Do you trust Jeffrey? I do. Would you be willing to submit to his decision? Sure. So Jeffrey sits down with Lucas and Jonathan, and he says, let me hear your story. Jeffrey might invite a couple other people in so that there's wise counsel, just the same, but Jeffrey will be giving the final decision because that's who's been asked. Jonathan, tell me your side of the story. With Lucas there. Lucas said... I'll give you this much money if you lay concrete for me for a walkway. Was that all that was said? Yes. Did you lay the concrete? Yes, I did. Lucas jumps in. But it was a terrible job. And he asks Lucas, Lucas, have you ever seen Jonathan lay concrete before? No. But he said he would. Does he lay concrete well? Is he naturally inclined to these things? I don't know. He said he would. Jeffrey in wisdom seeks the Lord and says, How about this? 
Lucas, be a man of your word and pay him. Jonathan, be a man of good virtue and seek help and repair it to where it's actually something decent. They both walk away. Neither are happy with the decision, like Judge Judy. And then after all of that, but they realize if they're going to be men of honor, they're both going to do that. If they don't do it, you know what happens? They've severed a relationship with each other, haven't they? I guarantee you, both will not be sitting in the same pew. But if they're like, you know what? That makes, you know, okay. I I may not like it, but I can see where you're coming from. Jonathan, you know anyone that does concrete? And he starts asking around. He finds out that Mark... Peyton here is, is very in doubt in a lot of those areas. He says, Mark, I need your help on this. I'm not doing real well with this. Okay, well, hey, all you need to do is a couple of things here, this and this and this, and it'll solve the problem. By the time it's done, guess what happens? Lucas has got a good walkway. Jonathan gets paid. But better than all of that, nobody in the outside world uses it as ammunition to say that's what Christians are like. Get it? Now, in a perfect world, that would work, but let's be honest. What if the person doesn't just be like, okay, but I don't like the decision. I only went because I was convinced they were going to go my way. So this is his second option. Are you ready for this? We'll see. Verse 7, the second part of it says, Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to your brethren. Here's the second one. You ready? Then walk away. But then that guy got away with it. If all you have is this moment, perhaps, but from a standpoint of eternity, don't worry, God will deal with it. That's not karma. That's God's justice. Scripture says, whoever seeks to hide their own sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses it and turns and forsakes it will find mercy. So, wait a minute, but then everyone's going to walk all over me. You have Jesus as your example. You're becoming like Jesus. But if someone walks over you to the cross, you've done well. If someone can't walk over you to the cross, and you've become then a wall to the cross, that's worse. Hey, now... You can read this and you can, cry, you can try to squeeze this and torture this until it says whatever you think it should say. But let's be honest, that's just what the scripture says. And you know what's cool? That if you really know that God's in charge, you can sleep at night. So even if one of the two of them, even if Lucas pays, but Jonathan doesn't do his end of the bargain... Lucas can still sleep well at night because he did his part. Does that make sense? And there's and what you cannot buy is a clean conscience. And he knows that he's done nothing to interfere with the world around him, looking into his world. To be honest, when you are cheated, it is one of the moments when you are sick and when you've been maltreated are the two times it seems to me that the world is really looking to see whether this God you serve is for real. Isn't it true? How are you going to respond to that? You say that you trust God's in control. Well, is he in control then? Or are you going to take matters into your own hands? 
tired of waiting? You're going to take matters into your own hands? How many times in Scripture do you have to read what happens when people do that to go, bad idea? So then he turns to this last section here. He says, don't you even know? Now who is he talking to now? The person who isn't willing to repent. The person who thinks that they're getting away with cheating someone, stealing from somebody, whatever the case is. And he lists out ten things. And can I just say, you don't want to be any of them? God does not single one out from the rest. He doesn't say, these nine are pretty bad, but this one's really bad. But God also doesn't say, these nine are really bad and this one isn't so bad either. So no matter what you read on your buses and and, and on the sides of your trains, truth be told, this is scripture here. And it can't be broken. And he says, the unrighteous, those who are not right with God, do not seek to be right with God, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's just that simple. And every one of these can become your identity. The idea is simple. God, I would accept you if you let me be this. That's the idea. And God says, it's not an option. That's like turning to the doctor and saying, you know what, I'll show I'm dying of emphysema. So I'm dying of emphysema and cancer. Go ahead and heal me as long as I can keep smoking. So I'm dying of cirrhosis of the liver, but can I keep drinking? The doctor's like, are you mental? We're fixing the problem because of that. And you turn to the Lord and you say, sure, save me from hell, but let me live like I'm going there anyways. The good news is this was some of us. And any one of you can be or was on any of this. The question is, are you currently making this your identity? And this is what it says. And I might as well go through it just to make sure we all get it. Don't be deceived. You know what that means? People are trying to lie to you right now and tell you it's okay. You know what that says? Stop going on the internet to try to prove that your sin's okay. That's what it says. Stop going to talk to people who you know are going to lie to you to make sure that somehow you can placate your conscience to say it's okay. And people go, well, yeah, I know this is what Scripture says, but I found somebody that could really tell me otherwise, and somehow they think they're still Christian. Hey, you know what? Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Paul says if if even if an angel preached the gospel other than the one he preached, Paul said, let him go to hell. I think he was pretty serious about it, don't you think? So here they are. First one, fornicators. Have a nice day. Pornos. Just in case you need to know what the Greek is, you can take it all the directions that that word sounds like because they all work. Any form of sexual relationship outside of marriage. Understand there's an appetite God gave you, but there's a menu He gave to fulfill it. Marriage, committed between two people. That's simple. A man and a woman. That's it. You say, well, I don't like how limited it is. That's okay. But if you come to my house, you should be thankful I'm limited to cooking you food. I decided food, glass, what's the difference? I'm a little broad-minded. Why are you so close-minded? Bleach? Sounds like a good drink. Put it over ice? Come on. Be nice. Your breath will be so clean, and your teeth will be whiter when you're done. Gargle with it. What? You don't like my bleach? Close-minded. You have an appetite that needs to be met the right way. Idolaters. By the way, Jesus, I should say this, God made clear in the book of 1 Samuel that even stubbornness is like the act of idolatry, just in case you wanted to think you got away with it. Adulterers. Now God goes after a specific type of fornication. 
which is any sexual relationship outside of the marriage for people who are married. Then he gives us two words. Why does God give us both homosexuals and sodomites? I mean, does that be God being redundant, saying the same thing, doing it again? No. The first word, for what it's worth, is the word of malakoi. And the word malakoi means to be feminine. We might actually use this in regards to transvestites, cross-dressers. I'm a woman in a man's body, that kind of thing. You're aware of the fact that now, in places like in Germany, parts of Germany, that when a baby's born, you can actually put male, female, or other? Exactly. How many people do you think apply to the other? So there is that ansodomites. That's people who are practicing that intercourse between two men or two women. So God has both. Nor thieves. By the way, did you notice God didn't set that apart? Thieves. Nor covetous. By the way, the word thief, interestingly enough, the word thief literally means to be eager for gain. Pleonectes. And the idea of it's pretty simple. It's a person that is constantly using people to get what they want. We could say a user. Because the next word for covetous is the word kleptis. Like the word we get kleptomaniac. A person who steals. Drunkards, by the way, is the word that's used of any form of intoxication. So don't tell me, by the way, it doesn't apply to you because you smoke marijuana. Because after all, that's natural. Because that grows. So does hemlock. Don't put it in your salad. Lots of things grow. Pit bulls grow. Don't let one loose on your face. Bad idea. But God made pit bulls. Yes, and we live in a fallen world. Nor revilers. The idea of a person who's constantly railing on others, nudging people, making them agitated, living to make people angry. Bring them to that place. We might say a person who's quick to argue with others. Extortioners. It's a person who's constantly conniving to get yours will inherit the kingdom of God. Now before I get into the last verse to close this up and praise the Lord for the last verse, this is not a dramatic pause of tension. Please hear me. Jesus says that when we come to him, he blots out our sin. So please, please, please hear me for the next couple of minutes. We're almost done here and I ask your patience. We were born sinners. That's what the scripture says. You were not a good person that fell into a bad world. Thank you, Mr. Rogers. Not the one that has his neighborhood. Carl Rogers. Anyways, one of the fathers of, founders of modern parapsychology. <laughs> Psychology. Anyways, I um, just want to clarify that. And sin lived in you. Sin lived in you. If sin were filling out an application for a credit card and it said permanent address, it would put you. Permanent address. Andrew, Andrew Barnett. Permanent address. Anthony Holiday. That's what would be that simple. Now, in the culture, 
When a person is born into the area, they write their name on this thing called the registry, the book of life. Now that book of life, by the way, isn't an uncommon term to the people who lived in the Middle East. What that meant is that you were recorded then in your genealogy. You were the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. It's all on your list. That's how the way we know that existed in Jesus' day, because that's how Jesus wound up in Bethlehem to be born, was they checked the registries of where your family came from. And then what they would simply write is your birth, your death, perhaps your bar mitzvah date, and when you got married and your children, so it could further on the line. That's how you could follow the line, even in things like David. But what if you were to do something so nasty, so heinous, so ignoble, that the very mention of your name would bring disgrace on your community? They would take a spongy material, dip it in water, and put it on where you were written so it would blot out your name, which he uses, by the way, in the book of Revelation. Blot out your name. It was as if you never lived. You were never born there. You were never raised there. You never went to school there. You never had your first date, your first heartbreak. You never lost your first tooth. You never ran around, had that bike accident that caused the scar. You never, you just did, you were never there. You still live. You're just not allowed in that community anymore. You could try to sneak in. You could walk around the streets at night, but if someone sees you, they're going to chase you out because you don't belong there. Does that make sense? Listen, that's what Jesus says about your sin. When you were born, Lucas, you were born with sin inside of you. But the moment you said yes to Jesus, Jesus evicted. He blotted out sin as if sin never was born in you, as if sin never lived in you, as if sin never told your mind to do a thing, as if sin never had its accomplishment in any area where it ever lived. It never lived in you anymore. That's what happened at the cross when Jesus died for your sins and you accepted it. His blood is what blotted out your sin. Do you get it? But sin can still come visit. It's just not a resident anymore. It needs a visa that you have to grant. But you do grant it. I do too. And we can agree, that's stupid. But we do. So when God speaks about this, He's speaking about people who are allowing permanent residency. We're talking about people that this lives in you. Because you say, well man, I've, I've lied. But when you did, what did you do with it? You know what happened? You became aware that that person was in town and you said, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't belong here. You're out. And you repented and you brought it before the Lord, didn't you? See, dead people don't struggle. That's the good news. So if you think for a moment, well, man, I'm probably going to hell because I've lied since I've been saved. Hey, he could come to visit, but does he live there anymore? Because he doesn't. The danger on some of these sins is people actually say, I'm a Christian, and then they add the word to it. That God says here, can't inherit the kingdom of God. That doesn't play. God says, because you know why that person can't live there anymore? Because a new person moved in and his name is Jesus. And because he moved in, well, the, the house is now occupied. And if you know that... The noise says, hey, look it. If this is the person who lives in your town, lives in who you are, how does that play out? Those people don't inherit the kingdom of God. You know why? Because Jesus isn't living there if this is who lives there instead. They don't live together. They don't have a timeshare. There's no like cohabitation here. 
God says about not being you know, unequally yoked with unbelievers, He says, what fellowship does darkness have with light? It's either one or the other. But if this is who you were, or even if this moment, this is who you are, you do not want to go to hell. You do not want to play with this. You don't want to go, well, I hope so. You want to be sure on this. And let me tell you who you are now if you have accepted Jesus. And if you are not sure, let me tell you who you could be instead. You're not an ex-homosexual. You're not an ex-sodomite. You're not an ex-thief. You're not an ex-reviler. You're not an ex-fornicator. That stuff was washed away. Remember, it is as if he was never born in you. Instead, you are three things. And this is how we close it. Are you ready? This is the good news, yeah? Such were some of you, but you were, first one, apelur, to wash fully. The first thing you are is immaculately whole. That's what you are. The second, you were sanctified. Hagiatso. To make holy, you are intimately His. You are immaculately whole. You're intimately His. And then you are justified. To render, because the word's dekayahu, to be put in its right place. To render or to show as in the proper place. You are innocently held. I am immaculately whole. I am intimately His. I am innocently held in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the blood, or say, by the Spirit of our God. I'm adopted. Romans 8.15 tells me that now I cry out, Abba, Father. I'm now light. Ephesians 5.6 or 5.8 tells me that. I've been brought near. Ephesians 2.13 tells me that. I've been reconciled. Colossians 1.21 says that. And now according to Revelation 1.6, I'm a king and a priest. That's what he's making me now. Why would I want to be those other things when I could be this instead? Have you been washed? Have you been immaculately made whole? Completely purged? completely? Have you been sanctified? Intimately made His? Have you been justified? Intimately and now innocently held? I stand before God in an innocent state because I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been made holy by a God who loves me and set me apart by His Spirit. And I've been declared innocent and held there by the Father Himself. The Trinity at work in my perfection. Hey, behavior still has its problems, and every once in a while, I'm stupid in my choices too, who I let in my town. But I've learned this. The older I get, the less attractive that stuff even looks. If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I want to give you that choice. If you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ... It is time for us to get real. And here's how it closes. It all boils down to one thing, and that is forgiveness. Isn't that what this is about? If somebody sins against us and we want to hold a grudge, I want to remind you 
The devil is the accuser of the brethren. And if you're hearing something that says, he does, he never, she always does, she never, that kind of stuff, or how come I do and she doesn't, how come he does and I don't, in the end, that's accusations and you got to know where they come from. Now, I'm not saying that horrible things haven't happened to you. But listen to this and we're going to pray. Do you remember when the paralytic was let down the roof in Capernaum? And Jesus' son, take up your mat and walk. Do you remember what the religious leader said? Who can forgive sin but God alone? You're like, I can't forgive that person's sin to me. I say, who can forgive sin but God alone? If he lives inside of you, if you've accepted him, he lives inside of you. And if he lives inside of you, he can forgive that sin through you. Just let him. I've heard it said unforgiveness is like drinking poison to spite your enemy. Let it go. Will you pray with me? Lord, I do pray, because we are so suckered into this get-mine entitlement world around us. And I recognize that that particular world is a dangerous one because it is not to play in the house of God. Your house. But we can be caught in it. We can get trapped in it. We can get confused and somehow try to drag that in here, but it doesn't belong here. Lord, forgive us for where we've lusted after whatever the Babylonian garment is of the day. That we would make that more important than people. Forgive us when we would look past the or not look past the, the empty cup, the snide look, or the, the, the lack of friendliness in a person's face when we go to get our whatever it is. Forgive us when we don't look past that to realize that there must be something going on with that person, that they genuinely need you. And Lord, if we really are going to put you first, we're going to put others second. And if we're going to put others second, Lord, then we're going to put ourselves last. And if we're going to put ourselves last, then we cannot make other people our the target of our anger and decimation when, when they're going to hell and we're not reaching out to them. And Lord, if we've ever been upset because of a temporary discomfort when we ourselves are not willing to step up and provide eternal hope, forgive us and change us. Lord, I pray for anyone right now who's debating on trying to figure out how to get theirs. And I know this is assaulting to where we stand at things like that. You're telling us to find someone we trust or to be wronged? And that stands against everything we think we have a right to. But Lord, show us that that entitlement mindset is what allows the world to think or encourages the world to think we don't have anything in you that they don't. And I want to step out and trust you, Lord. Vengeance is yours. You are right. I think of two different people this week, Lord, who have been fired because of their, simply because they stood up on you and just said, I can't do this because it's against what I stand for. And then we're fired for it. And all that did was provide other opportunities for you to be glorified as you provide in the shortfall. 
But Lord, it's a lot easier to talk about others than ourselves when that kind of stuff happens. So Lord, let us be a family that you build together that encourages each other to trust you even when things have gone wrong. And Lord, when we've been wronged and we want to talk about it to other people, which we know is not biblical, when we feel like we've been wrong, I know there are times when people feel like they've been wrong and they'll tell us that, you know, just everyone that they can get their hands on and then find out afterwards that they, were, they misinterpreted something but not tell anyone about it later. And the damage has been done. Show us how wicked that is and how we can harm each other. Lord, let us be people who are humble and loving and forgiving, not demanding and angry and bitter and unforgiving, those things that are completely opposite of you. So purge us tonight. Because in the end of it all, if you wanted to demand your rights, you wanted to get vindication, we would have all gone to hell by now. And even though, Lord, many of us, if not all of us, could find ourselves on that list at one time or another, thank you that we've been washed. Thank you that we've been sanctified. Thank you that we've been made right with you. We've been justified. Thank you that you showed the higher road. And if you did that to us when you forgave us of all of our sins, how can we not do that to others who will not sin that much against us? And I pray right now, Lord, you would forgive through us anything we want to hold on to. That we could let it go tonight. And be free. Finally, be free. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room right now that's not sure if they've ever accepted your gift. Tonight, they know they need to get right with you. Show them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Hey, and if that's you tonight, I'm just going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. The Bible says, if we're willing to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And that's what I'm challenging you. I'm challenging you to be saved tonight. To inherit the kingdom of God, to call God your Father, and to let go of what's holding you back now. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I confess to you I'm a sinner. Not perfect. And you have a right to punish me for everything, but in your perfect love, you sent Jesus to take the punishment for me. And he died on the cross because I deserved it. And then three days later, just as scripture promised, he rose again. And so now here I am to say yes to you, to accept that payment on my behalf, to believe Jesus died for me so I don't have to take that punishment and go to hell. And that He rose again to be my Lord now. So I allow Him, Lord, to be the Lord of my life. And I may not fully understand that, but I know this. You can do a whole lot better with it than I can. So please now have my life and make me yours completely. I surrender to you in Jesus' name. If you agree, I simply ask you to say with me, Amen.